0: Uh, so glad to have you all with us today and being able to worship together and just being able to, uh, to be in this passage of scripture that we're, we're just reading, Second Samuel chapter 11. We're really going to just kind of uh, emphasize some things here and then move to chapter 12. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 12. Uh, if last week when we talked about David's life, we talked about sins of omission, something that David did that he didn't really understand what he was doing was wrong and why it would cause him affliction. Today we're going to talk about things that are intentional in David's life that he kind of goes, I know this is wrong, but I'm going to do it anyway. I don't know if you've ever been there before. Trust me, I have, which probably also means that you have as well. Uh, And so we've been in those places before, but here's what we find as we kind of just review chapter 11, we see this, and this is a, a tragic tale that has all kinds of tragic decisions that are made, which lead to tragic actions that have tragic consequences, Right When you think about the story of David and Bathsheba, and this is probably one of the more familiar stories in scripture, uh, even if you've not been a Christian very long, if you've not been around church very much, you probably know something about the story of David and Bathsheba. And so here's what we kind of find with them. David is home when the troops are out to battle. He's supposed to be with the troops, but it says in the time that kings go to war, David finds himself at home. He's in the wrong place at the wrong time. Right? And that's one of the first tragic parts of this is that David's just not doing the things he's supposed to be doing. And in the course of that, it says late one evening, David gets up out of his bed and he goes out onto the roof of his house. And as he does, he sees this woman on the other roof of another house and she's uh, unclothed and she's taking a bath. Right, And so we get this story to unfold. And David in that moment, instead of just going, oh, divert my eyes, shouldn't be looking there. Let's go a different direction. David says, hey, go bring her to me. Right, And he has this men go in and bring Bathsheba to the palace. There's this affair that takes place between the two of them, and then he sends her home. In the due course of time, word comes back to David that Bathsheba's pregnant. Now he's got to deal with something that he never anticipated dealing with, right? And so the message gets sent out, hey, here's the idea that I've come up with. Let's bring her husband home from the war. He knows she's married. He knows this is not a relationship he's supposed to be engaged in. So he goes, bring the husband home. And the idea is maybe, maybe if he goes home, the thought process will be, well, if she's pregnant now, it's his child, right? And so that's the cover up. That's the deception that gets brought in. The problem for David is, is that when Uriah comes back from the battle, Uriah is a person of integrity, great integrity. And instead of going home, when he comes to, to the palace, he goes and he sleeps out in the courtyard of the palace, and when David finds out about that, he calls him back in. He goes, why didn't you go home? What are you doing? Like, you've been at war. You've been at battle. Shouldn't you have gone home, be with your wife, go see her? And he goes, how, how could I possibly do that? The king's men, the Lord's army is at war, and you want me to go home and enjoy the comforts of my home and the comforts of my spouse? Like, I'm not going to do that. God forbid that I would do something like that. So David goes, all right, well, the plan's got to go deeper. What's he do this time? Let's get him drunk, <laughs> right? Let's, that makes things better. And so now we've got this moment where David has Uriah in the palace. He gets him drunk, and he goes, well, maybe now he'll just go home in a drunken stupor. But he doesn't. He spends the night again on the grounds of the palace, at the entrance of the palace gate. So Uriah is a man of integrity. David is a man whose integrity is continually failing in this moment. And David thinks, hey, you know what? The only solution I can come up with now is I just have to kill the guy. And he writes a letter to Joab, the commander of the army, about what to do to take the life of Uriah in battle. So it happens in war. David's not got any blood on his hands, he thinks. It's just something that happens in the course of battle. Put him in the thick and the heart of the war, and when it gets bad, pull the troops back, and Uriah's gonna be on the front lines, and he'll be defenseless, and he's gonna die. And David hands that note to Uriah and says, take this to Joab. Uriah carries his own death certificate to the front lines of the battle. And as it happens, Uriah's life is taken by the Ammonites in battle. And what we see in this story, all of these things that are happening, one seemingly innocent moment plants a seed in David's mind that leads to an adulterous affair, which leads to deceptive actions, which leads to murder. Right, like one sin turns into many. Two people's sin affects many, many people. Right? And that's the reality of sin. When we play around with sin and there's things that we think, oh man, this isn't so bad. I can, I can just kind of play around with this and it won't hurt anybody or it's only affecting me or nobody even knows what's going on. It's just my sin and I've just got these little things that I'll indulge myself in that aren't so bad. And yet one sin grows to another, grows to another, grows to another. And especially in the area of sexual sin, your sins never stop with just hurting you. They always hurt other people. There's always pain that comes on this, the affliction that we deal out to others because of our sin. And so that's what we find. But here's what I love, and we think about this, is that sin will take you further than you want to go, and it'll keep you longer than you want to stay. And when we think about sin, and we kind of go, man, we need to get the reality in our minds that sin isn't something to toy around with. It's not something to play with. It's something that wants to destroy us. It takes us further than we want to go and it keeps us longer than we want to stay. We think, I'll just dabble in this a little bit. I'll just have this one relationship that's not right. I'll just do this one thing at my job that is inappropriate. I'll just take this one thing that isn't mine and you just get the little piece of it and then sin will take you further and further and further. It's never satisfied. Sin is never satisfied with you just committing a sin. Sin wants to lead you to the point where it destroys you and kills you. And if not physically, it wants to kill your marriage. It wants to kill your career. It wants to kill your testimony as a believer in Jesus. Sin wants to destroy you. And yet we just play around with it like it's innocent. And so that's where we find David. But here's what I I see in the middle of this passage as we read this. The last sentence of chapter 11 and the first sentence of chapter 12 give us a heart of God in the Old Testament for the power of the gospel. That we see the gospel on display at the end of chapter 11, the beginning of chapter 12. Here's the last sentence in chapter 11, verse 27. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. right? So we see this and we go, sin is displeasing to God. When we think about our sin, we don't just go, oh, well, this is something that God's kind of okay with, or he's probably not upset about these things. Sin is displeasing to God. And it requires a response from God. And for us, the good news of the gospel is, is that while sin grieves the hearts of God and he can't allow sin in His presence and he can't stand sin in the lives of His followers, he doesn't leave us in our sin. The power of the gospel comes in the first sentence of chapter 13, or chapter 12. It says this: "The Lord sent Nathan to David." All right. Now here's what we're going to unfold and we're going to unpack, and really this is a foreshadowing even of the gospel in the New Testament. Because the Bible tells us that when we were dead in our transgressions and in our sins, at just the right time, God sent his son. And he sends his son to die for us. And when David is in the middle of the worst sin so far that we have recorded in scripture, at least, of his life, God doesn't abandon him and he doesn't leave him alone. He sends Nathan. And you're going to see Nathan come in, and there's going to be some hard things that happen here, but God doesn't turn his back on David when he sinned. He sent Nathan, who's a prophet, and he has a message for David. And Nathan has the unenviable task of speaking truth to power. Have you ever been there before? That is not a fun place to be. When there's somebody who's uh, over you in authority, in position, in rank, whatever it may be, having to speak truth to power is difficult. David's the king of the land there's nobody greater than David and now Nathan has to go and he stands in the presence of the king and this is where we pick up the story with Nathan being someone who's going to speak to David as a man of power. David's risen to this place of power and authority and there's uh, this no more any place in people's life for him to say no to him. Right like David just has yes men kind of around him. This is what happens. So what happens when we rise to power. This is what happens when there's no other authority but us. That we're just told yes all the time. I mean, can you imagine what it would have looked like for David if the men that he had sent to get Bathsheba, or just when he asked, hey, who's the girl down there on the other roof? And they went, oh, she is the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And David went, oh, wow, bring her to me. What if somebody had gone, you know, David... <laughs> that's not a great idea it's not something that the king of israel should be doing it's not responsible it's not loving it's not good leadership there are some things that could really hurt you if you pursue this path how about king what if instead of us doing that what if we just go ask her to maybe take her bath inside or at least put on some clothes right Like, let's just take a different path instead of bringing her to the palace. But nobody can say no to David at this juncture. And so they go and they retrieve her and they bring her to the palace. So now Nathan comes in and he's got this unenviable task of speaking truth to power. And I want us to go back and I want us to see on the back end of David's sin, what Nathan does to confront him. So here's what we get in chapter 12. We're going to read the first nine verses together and then we'll move on through the chapter in a minute says the lord sent Nathan to David and when he had come to him he said there were two men in a certain town one rich and the other poor the rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought he raised it and it grew up with him and his children it shared his food it drank from his cup and it even slept in his arms it was like a daughter to him now a traveler came to the rich man But the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. And instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. And David burned with anger against the man and said, Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. And he must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. And then Nathan said to David, you're the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I anointed you, king of Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all of Israel and Judah. And if all of this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what's evil? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and you took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. And Nathan comes in and he has this moment and he's really brilliant. It's a brilliant strategy that he approaches David with. He comes in and he tells a story and David just bites hard on it, right? Like he tells this story about a rich man who's got all kinds of wealth and cattle and lambs and, and a poor guy who's got one that he treats like a child. Some of you are like, I'm all too familiar with that. I got my dog or my cat at home and it's just my little kid, right? And I know what that looks like, and I've got that sense in my mind of what it's like to have this little pet. But one day a traveler comes to the rich man, and instead of taking one of his own cattle or sheep and killing it, he goes and he takes it from the rich man, and he kills it, and he serves it to the guy. And David is furious. Like in David's mind, this isn't just a story that's being told for an analogy, This is something that's really happening in his kingdom. And so David takes on the heart of that moment as king of judge. And he goes, that guy's got to die for what he did. And he needs to pay four times over what he took from that man. And you just see David's heart going, there's justice that has to be served here. And he thinks he's doing what's right and that he's bringing justice on somebody else. But the table turns at that moment when Nathan goes, you're the guy. You're the rich man, David. You're the one who's brought this kind of pain into Israel. You're the one who has everything, and you took something that wasn't yours. And not only that, you didn't stop there. You killed her husband. And he even says, it was by the hands of the Ammonites, but he says, you killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. This was a setup, and it's on your head. And you think you might have washed the blood from your hands and that it was done by somebody else and it just happened to be something that happens in war. But God sees it, David, as it's your sin, your shame, your brokenness. You've got to pay for it. And so we see all this unfold. And the first thing here, if you're taking notes this morning, that I want you to get is that God sent Nathan to rebuke David and hand down discipline to him. That it's God's mercy that these kinds of things happen. And I want you to hear this mo- this morning because it's not popular in our culture today, but discipline is a sign of love. Discipline is God looking at you and saying, "When you have sin in your life, even as a follower of Jesus, even though the sin has been paid for on the cross, when you step outside of a relationship with me to pursue sinful things, I'm going to come at you with my spirit, and I'm going to discipline you, not hurt you, not kill you, but turn you back. That's the heart of God in the gospel. He goes, when you sin, my heart is to pursue you and turn you back to me so that you come back to a place in repentance where your life will be changed and you'll step away from sin and back into righteousness and back into holiness and back into a pursuit of godliness. He goes, that's my heart for you. Is I'm going to come after you with these things. God sent Nathan to rebuke David and to hand down discipline to him. Here's what Hebrews 12 says in the New Testament. And he's quoting Proverbs 3 from the Old Testament. It said, God disciplines those he loves. Right? The loving discipline of a father is to turn their hearts back to God. And the loving discipline of God is to turn our hearts when we sin back to Jesus. And to go, this sin isn't something that I'm excited about. This sin isn't the best thing for me. This sin that I thought would fulfill me, that would make me feel good, this sin that I thought would make everything better, it's really not good for me. And God is going to discipline me and turn me back to Jesus. Here's what you should really be afraid of. Not the discipline of God. It's if in your sin, God doesn't come after you and discipline you. That's when you need to be worried. Because if you're walking in sin and God's not prompting you to return to him, it may mean you don't even have a relationship with him. And you need to evaluate and explore where am I really genuinely in this pursuit of God in a relationship with Jesus Christ. Discipline is the love of God for us. And so Nathan brings accountability to the situation. If you want to walk in holiness as a follower of Jesus, listen, you need some accountability in your life. You need someone, and I need people in my life and in your life who are going to ask you the hard questions. And I'm so thankful for men in my life throughout the years and men in this church that are willing to ask me the hard questions, that are willing to ask me, how's your purity? Are you watching things you shouldn't? Are you having conversations with people that are inappropriate? Is there anything you're doing that's stepping outside of the realm of what's good and holy and godly? Are you pursuing Jesus with all of your heart? Is he number one in your life, or is there something else that's become a mistress to you that you're chasing and pursuing that you think is going to fill you, but it won't. It'll leave you empty. We need accountability in our life. We need somebody like Nathan who's going to come in and ask us those hard questions, but here's the second thing I want us to see today. We easily overlook our own sin to examine the sins of others, right? Like David's furious at the story of the murdered lamb, but he shows no signs of remorse for the fact that he's taken another man's wife and then had that guy killed. And he's able to look and go, the lamb, let's talk about that guy for a minute. That guy's terrible. He killed a sheep and he has no problem seeing the horrific thing that was done against the man, but he has no ability to see what's going on in his own life. And Jesus says it this way in Matthew chapter 7, verses 3 through 5. He says, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and you pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? Right? Now, when I think about a plank, I think about it like a two-by-four. So if you just imagine a two-by-four sticking out of your face... But you look past that and you go, dude, dude, is that a speck of sawdust in your eye? Like what is wrong with you, right? Like we have no problem looking at other people's lives and seeing where they're making small mistakes, which God would say any sin is a radical sin, it's all bad. But he goes, when you've got a plank sticking out of your eye, you have no business looking at somebody else's face and calling them out on their sin. He goes, first How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the while there's a plank in your own, you hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye and then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Like he's not saying accountability isn't good. You shouldn't ever tell somebody they've got a speck in their eye. He goes, but before you do that, be careful that you remove all of the problems and issues from your life. That you explore and let the Holy Spirit of God come in and do some cleansing and cleaning in your life to deal with the sin you have before you start pointing out the sins of others. Because how many times and how easy is it for us to walk through life and just be going, I see your sin? <laughs> I see you doing that. I'm watching you. I know what's going on in your life. You think you're fooling everybody, you're not. I know what's going on, right? You you are deeply keyed into other people's sins. No idea what's going on in your own heart. Because for whatever reason, we go, my sin isn't all that bad. I'll hold you accountable to yours, but mine, (laughs) I've got my own pet sins. And they're not all that bad. And God will look at it and go, it's destructive. And you need help. It's easy to see the sin of others and want to hold them accountable. But are we willing to do some self-exploration and discover the problem our own sin causes? There's no innocent sin There's no excuse that we can make up that Jesus will find our sin more acceptable. None of it. When we're willing to live with pet sins, I think Nathan preached on this several weeks ago, but when we're willing to live with pet sins in our life, we shouldn't be surprised when they grow up into monsters and they're ready to destroy us the little thing you think you're doing that nobody knows about, that's not harming you at all and it's not hurting anybody else, it's gonna grow and it's gonna become a monster in your life and it'll take you down and it'll take others down around you. That's just the nature of sin. So that brings us to the third thing we have to be aware of. Number three is this, that our sins have consequences, right? We've all known athletes or politicians or spiritual leaders or even just an individual in your own life, we've known people who've been taken down by sin and here's what we see with them every time. The fall never ends with them alone, it always takes other people down with them. There's never a time you've seen somebody take a public fall and it's just been them. Sin has consequences. Your private sin, when it becomes public, it has consequences, not just for you, but for other people around you. And it's harmful, it's painful. It has consequences for your family, your co-workers, your Christian brothers and sisters, untold numbers of people. And when Satan tempts us with sin, and when your own carnal nature tempts you to sin and to go after things that sinful desires, the goal is never just to hurt you, it wants to kill everybody around you. It's like this is the destructive path that sin creates in our lives. I want to take you down and I want to destroy everybody that's with you. So we have to be aware of these things. I mean, look at David's life again, 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 10 through 14. Now that Nathan has confronted him, he's going to come and say, hey, here's, here's the consequences now. Because your sin isn't going to end with you. There's consequences. This is coming from God. This is not just Nathan going, here's what I think is the punishment. God's going to tell Nathan what to say to David. He says, now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity on you. That word calamity, guess what a synonym for that is? Affliction. This whole series that we're dealing with, the afflictions that we face in our lives from different things when it comes to our sinfulness, he goes, I'm going to bring calamity and affliction on you. Before your very eyes, I'll take your wives and give them to one who's close to you. And he'll sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. Then David said to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. And Nathan replied, the Lord's taken away your sin. You're not going to die. But because by doing this, you've shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. So for David, there are immediate consequences. That last sentence, he goes, the child that was born, the child's going to die, David. That's the immediate consequence. But then there's future consequences as well. And in the next few weeks, we're going to be talking about these things as they unfold in David's life. Because this one moment of affliction that comes into his life that he chose for himself is going to unravel into a world of affliction. And God goes, you're, you're going to have the sword that's going to be against you for the rest of your days. David's going to face from within his own family people who are going to try to steal the kingdom from him. And he goes, no, that thing you did in private, that's going to happen in public. And we're going to find David's own son, rebel against him, take the kingdom for a season, and bring out all of David's wives onto the rooftop of the palace. And David and all of Israel are going to have to watch the sinister sin take place. And so God says, these things are going to have consequences for you, David. It's all foreshadowing right now, but it's going to come true. Our sins have consequences. But don't miss, or don't miss rather, God's mercy in the middle of all this. Because David says, I've sinned against God. Right? Like he recognizes in this moment, I want to confess my sin. I want to own my sin. I'm going to take these things and I'm going to make sure that I'm dealing with them. And Nathan says, you're not going to die. And I think that's important. I was really questioning some of that this week when I was studying to go, why in the world does God say that? Like there's very few times in scripture that we see somebody who goes, I sin and then immediately they just die, right? And yet I was thinking back to what we talked about last week where we saw David mess with the ark of God, bringing it into the city of Israel the wrong way or into the city of Jerusalem the wrong way. And when when they reached out and touched the ark, They immediately just died. And so I think that David, who knows the power of God's holiness, and who knows what happens when you do sin against it, this has to be a fear for him. Is this going to result in death for me? I sinned against God. Am I going to die? And Nathan gives him this mercy. It says, you're not going to die. There's consequences, but your life is going to be spared. God is still for you, David. He's still with you. And here's the last thing that I want us to see this morning when Nathan says, the Lord has taken your sin away. You're not going to die. I want us to see this, that repentance leads to reconciliation and restoration. And this is the beautiful part of all of this story is that David has a moment where he owns his sin. He doesn't go, hey, I made a mistake. (laughs) He doesn't try to play it off and go, oh man, I really messed up. Oh, Nathan, it was just a momentary lapse in judgment. David goes, I have sinned against God. He calls his sin, sin. He's serious about it. And he calls it out. And so Nathan says, you're not going to die. But for some of you reading this, you still are a little dissatisfied. and You're like, that's it? David just goes, I sinned. And God goes, it's okay. I'm going to spare you. And that's all we get? Like, this seems really tragic as it unfolds and all we're going to get is David going, oh, I sinned. And God going, well, I'm not going to kill you. But that's not how you should be reading this. We're getting just a glimpse of this, but this is the beauty of us having the totality of Scripture because if you turn to Psalm chapter 51, you find what happens when David is confronted by Nathan and how David responds to this. Here's what you see in the introduction of Psalm 51. It says, for the director of music, David writes a song. It says, this is a Psalm of David And it happened when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Now listen to what David says here. This is not just, I've sinned against the Lord. Listen to the depth of what he goes into. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions. My sin is always before me. Have you ever been in that place where once you've sinned, you just keep the guilt and the shame. It just lingers over you and hovers all the time. And you're like, I've just sinned, and I can't get away from it. It's always there. It's constantly in my mind. David's going, I'm dying from this. My sin is always before me. And against you, you only have I sinned and done what's evil in your sight. So you're right in your verdict. And you're justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desire faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. So cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you've crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I'll teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Like I love this heart of David where he goes, yes, I've sinned. Yes, I've messed up. But God, if you'll allow me to experience your cleansing, if you'll allow me to experience your forgiveness, if you'll wash me whiter than snow, I'll go and begin to preach again a gospel of repentance and restoration to the people so that they in turn can respond and turn to you. David goes, make me an example. If you'll forgive me, and if you'll allow me to respond and return to you, and be reconciled to you, and restored as king over Israel, then guess what God can do for everybody else? He can restore them when they repent and be reconciled. He goes, nobody's out of God's favor, but deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God. You who are God, my Savior, my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous in burnt offerings offered whole. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. So David throws himself on the unfailing love, mercy, and compassion of God. And he acknowledges that ju- God's judgment on his sin is just and right. But most important, here's the thing that David does is more important than anything else. God brings his sin, or David brings his sin into the light. And so here's what's super important for us, Christians, if you're listening this morning. When you have sin in your life, the only way to deal with it and to rid yourself of it is to bring it into the light of God's glory. When we try to keep sin hidden in the dark, that's where it grows. I want you to think about sin like mold, right? Like think about a corner of your basement that's got a drip, and there's just this cold, damp space And mold is growing on the wall. And as long as you leave it in that environment, all it's going to do is continue to grow and expand. Mold will just keep growing, keep moving. It's gross, it's nasty. But if you don't remove that environment, if you don't fix that leak, if you don't expose some light and heat to it, it's gonna stay growing, this gross, nasty stuff. That's what sin does in our life. Until you bring it into the glorious light of God's radiant grace... And then he starts melting that sin away. And he goes, it's been paid for on the cross by Jesus. Your sin has been paid for. But I want you to bring it to the light. And if you want to deal with it and really root it out of your heart and out of your life, you need to expose it to the light of God's grace. You don't need to say it was a mistake, I messed up, lack of judgment. You go, this is sin and I want to be done with it. God, here, I'm bringing it to you and you let sin come to the light and God will eradicate it and he will find a way to root it out of your heart and out of your life. Proverbs 28:13 says whoever conceals their sin does not prosper but the one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy. So we find mercy from God but we have also to strive to give mercy to one another. Biblical community includes accountability, repentance, reconciliation and restoration. And here's where I want us to wrap up this morning because we're going to sin, it's inevitable. But the beauty of the church and this community that we've built when we're operating in the light of Jesus's grace is that when I sin, when you sin, we're able to help people find restoration with God. That we're the church of Jesus. we're the only community I know of in the world that celebrates the fact that we are people in progress. Everybody else wants to act like we've got it all together. We're perfect. We've got the perfect government system, we've got the perfect structure, we've got the perfect style, we've got the perfect thing, we've got the perfect business model. We've there are no flaws, no cracks. We've got it together. And the church, people in the church, Followers of Jesus are going, I'm a mess and I'm a wreck. And I show up every single Sunday to confess to you, God, that I am full of a people. I'm surrounded by people who are just like me. We are broken and we're in need. And if it's not for your restoration and your healing power, my life is in shambles. We need the power of the gospel to bring healing and wholeness to us. We're a community who are followers of Jesus that are people in progress. And here's what I love about our church. I wish I could speak about every church, but I can't. I can only speak about us. I have the perspective of seeing what happens in people's lives when sin enters into the fray. And I love and am thankful about our church that when people have sin in their lives and when it becomes public and when people find out about it and when they seek help and they seek accountability, that the people in our church are willing to walk through the mess with other people that they're willing to go hey this is difficult it's awful i hate what you're going through but let me walk with you through this i've been in too many places where when sin gets exposed they just go ooh well you're out we're done with you then i guess or we'll take it upon ourselves to go well nobody can possibly love me anymore i'll just remove myself from the church i'll just take myself out of play of christian community because surely nobody could ever understand what I've done and, and offer me help or forgiveness. But the truth is, is that that's the power of the gospel. That's what Jesus has done. That's why the church exists. We're a place for people to come and go, I've messed up. I've sinned. I didn't follow God like I was supposed to. And I need help. And then we step in and we offer love and grace and mercy and forgiveness. And we give accountability That leads to people being reconciled in relationships. And we offer help that gets them to a place where they're restored to ministry. That we don't go, well, because of your sin, God's just done with you. You never have a place of ministry again. I guess you can never be on the worship team again. You sinned. Guess you can never serve with kids again. You sinned. We certainly can't have you handing a bulletin to anybody, you sinner, right? Like, we have got to find ways to walk beside people and go, I know you sinned, I know you stepped out of fellowship with God, but here's the good news and the power of Jesus, there's hope to restore you. If you walk in repentance, and if you show that God is working in your life to restore you, then we want to help see reconciliation take place, And we want to see you return to a place where you're serving in ministry and where you're walking in faithfulness again, where you find healing and help and wholeness. That's the power of the gospel. And here's how we see it play out in the long run. This is where we'll close up this morning. Because in our eyes, this episode in David's life, and if you're a judgmental person, you might be going, well, we're done with David then, I guess. (laughs) His story's over right here. That's it. God is done with that guy. Man after God's own heart, not after that. He's done for. But let me remind you how this story unfolds over the next, I don't know, thousand years. By the time Jesus comes onto the scene, in Matthew's gospel, we get a painting of the lineage of Jesus. And Matthew just lists everybody from Jesus back to Adam who's a part of this family that God uses to bring his Savior into the world. Do you want to know the names they are in the list? I'll just read you one, because it's a lot. But Matthew 1, 6 says, Jesse was the father of King David, and David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. You go, man, why in the world does that make you emotional? I don't know. I'm just an emotional person. But here's what's really true. (laughs) I didn't intend to be emotional reading that. But here's what's true. David and Bathsheba, out of an adulterous relationship, God finds a way to restore that and redeem it for his bigger story. And if you think there's sin in your life today that God can't redeem and use for a bigger story, you're wrong. God is in the business of redemption. He takes what's broken and he uses it. And he uses people. The story of Jesus' family, just go back and read Matthew chapter one. Every person in the story is jacked up. They're a mess. Jesus comes from a broken family, but he comes to be the only person who's not broken. So he can restore the broken. That's what he does. And that's the gift of grace that we have in Jesus. And so this morning, I'm going to ask the band to come back up. We're going to sing a song again together this morning, one we've already sang today, but we're going to proclaim it with maybe some newfound intensity after hearing some of this story. But here's what I would want you to know. If you're in a place personally where you know you've got sin going on in your life and it's been kept in the dark, it's time for you to bring it out into the light. Now, that does not mean you have to come up and confess your sin to everybody in the room and go, well, here's ours, and then let's just form a line over here and everybody grab a microphone and tell your sins. Not doing that. But you do need to go to somebody. Jesus first, who's paid for your sins, you need to confess that. The Bible says if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just, and he will forgive you of your sins and cleanse you of your sins and lead you to Righteousness. You confess your sin to Jesus, but then you get somebody else that you're close to and you go, I just need to bring this into the light and I need to ask you to hold me accountable and I need to ask you to walk with me because I've been trying to carry this by myself and it's too much and I thought I could beat it by myself and I can't and I need the power of the Holy Spirit to help me find victory and I need you to walk with me to help me find victory. And it may be the most difficult thing that you ever do is telling someone that you respect about some sin in your life. But I'm going to make a promise to you. If they love Jesus and walk in grace, it will be the most healing thing you'll ever do. And so let's just ask God to give us the courage to do that. Thanks so much for checking out our message today. We hope you were challenged and blessed by it. We want to invite you to come and worship with us in person if you live in the Tri-Cities area. We meet on Sunday mornings at 9 and 1045 a.m. at One Fellowship Point in Kingsport, Tennessee. You can also get more information about us from our website or our mobile app. Have a great day.